Victoria and hello, it's your old rocky jockey stand the man here once again. Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 double the Breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves, uh, 30 minutes or so where we catch up with the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest was a New Zealand import who came to Australia for a six-week working holiday and decided he liked it so much, he made us his home. Well, hello, my friend. Is this Gary Mack? Uh, this is the uh, living, live, and in super-duper colour Gary Mack, yes. Welcome to Pilots, Gary. That six weeks working holiday has obviously provided a lifetime of opportunities and memories. How did your parents feel at the time about your point of no return? Well, I've got to say that I probably broke my mother's heart because I'm an only child. Uh, there's only one of me and the world is grateful. <laughs> um, yeah, my mother wasn't fussy about me leaving home at all. Um, I grew up in a little town called Hastings in New Zealand, which is on the east coast of the North Island. And uh, I had visions of getting into radio from a young age. And uh, when somebody just happened to whisper, I had never thought about traveling anywhere. I wanted to, you know, I was going to stay there. Um, and, and a mate of mine that I was working with marking time in a menswear store, selling clothes and measuring men's waists and inside legs and things. Uh, he said to me one day, hey, what say we uh, go to Australia for a six-week working holiday? And I, I didn't even think about it. I said, okay, you're on. <laughs> so we had to put some money together and, and uh, save a bit, and we'd planned to leave the following April, whatever it was, and uh, arrived in Sydney for what was to be six weeks. And I had a return ticket and uh, suddenly I found myself getting into radio. And so it's been the longest six weeks of my life, I suppose. It's been a long holiday. While living in Sydney, who were the jocks that you were tuned into in Sin City? Uh, there were a number of people, John Brennan. Sadly, John's no longer with us. He was at 2UE. Ward Pelly Austin. John Laws, of course. John Laws was making a name for himself at the time that I arrived in Sydney, and he was jumping from one radio station to another. Uh, I, I, however, I got to know him. When I say I got to know him, I met him a few times along the way because I was one of those wormy people that would um, just turn up at a radio station and say, hey, I need some help to get in to do what you guys do. Where do I go? So I made a bit of a nuisance of myself in the nicest possible way. Uh, and... Uh, one day I walked into 2UW in Sydney and I was watching Ward Pally Austin run his radio program. Now he was bizarre on air. He, um, he was sort of like the Sydney version of Don Lunn in the early days of Don and Don was just, he was amazing. And, and so was Pally Austin. Uh, Pally was um, full of himself uh, but maybe in those days, and I used to think maybe in those days, that's the sort of front you had to have, <laughs> or you had to possess a personality that was a little over the top. And while I was at 2UW watching Ward Pally Austin through the glass, working on the wireless, uh, this guy walked out of an office not far up the corridor. And, uh, and he said, uh, 
who are you? What are you doing? And I said, oh, the reception lady downstairs let me come up and have a look around. He said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I want to get into radio. And uh, he said, well, you've come to the right place. He said, this is the best radio station in town. I said, yeah, it is. He said, that's because I run it. Oh, I said, he said, come into my office. So I've gone into his office. He said, I'm Ray Bean. And you would have heard of Ray Bean. Ray Bean was program director at 2UW in those days. Ray, sadly, is no longer with us. He went just recently. And he was a lovely bloke. He, uh, he was the best. He was a program director who knew everything there was to know about people acumen, business acumen, all of that. And uh, so, and we got along like a house on fire. Uh, here I am, 19 years of age, uh, no nothing. All I had was uh, the ambition to get into radio. And uh, he made a few suggestions. He said I should go and see, and that name escapes me for the moment, but this guy used to work at 2CH. And that eventually led to me getting into a radio school that was run by uh, Charles McLaughlin, who used to work at 2GB. And during the course of conversation uh, with Ray Bean, uh, he happened to look at his watch and he said, um, what are you doing? He said, are you doing anything for the next hour? And I said, no. He said, listen, I've just, uh, I've been invited, he said, to go down the road. They're down in Kent Street, he said, there's a pub down there. And he said, there's some uh, Welsh singer in town. I don't know. He said, haven't heard of him, but he, he said, uh, the record company wants me to go down and meet him. And there's a whole bunch of radio bods going down there. He said, do you want to come with me? And I said, yeah, sure. So I've uh, followed Ray Bean down uh, Kent Street. Wasn't far from the radio station in those days, probably about two or three blocks down. And we walked into this pub and lo and behold, sitting there on a bar stool and a couple of people talking to him was a young bloke that no one knew anything about at the time, a young bloke called Tom Jones. And, oh, g'day, Tom, how are you, mate? Oh, yeah, good, good. G'day. And I had a picture taken sitting with Tom Jones and Ray Bean on the concrete step of that pub in Kent Street when I was 19 years old. So first up, you were sent to 2NX in Newcastle, then 2MG in Mudgee, followed by three years in Bathurst. What were some of the main lessons that you learnt or were taught in those early broadcasting years? Yeah, the, the job in Newcastle, uh, I had this hankering, I wanted to do everything. I wanted to, I wanted to sell advertising. I wanted to find out how the whole thing worked. I wanted to write the advertising copy. I wanted to voice the, the thing and I wanted to produce the commercial, you know, adding the music and the sound effects and all the other stuff. Um, but I was, I could not, I was not given that opportunity and that wasn't the, um, the brief at 2NX. My job was to be night announcer, uh, 6 p.m. until midnight, Monday to Friday. And uh, I mean, I reveled in that. Six hours on the air every night, you know, in Newcastle. That was fantastic. The music was very much middle of the road. Uh, it was still in the day of, uh, well, it was kind of beautiful music, but it was Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Mantovani and his orchestra, Doris Day, all the legends from the 40s and 50s, even some from the 30s, Ella Fitzgerald, who I love, um, uh, Sarah Vaughan. And I grew up, with my parents listening to that music. So I, I had an awareness of that, that music from that era, if you like. Uh, and uh, I wanted to do more things than just be on the air. Um, but those opportunities weren't, weren't available. So after a year or so, I think it was, uh, I spoke to the program director and said, look, I've got this hankering to get out of here and go and do something where it's all total hands-on. And he helped me and he came up with 2MG and Mudgee. And I thought, Mudgee? Where the hell is Mudgee? As it turned out, Mudgee is just the most beautiful little town. It's only got two main streets. It's probably grown in size since I was there. It had a clock tower in the middle of the, uh, the road where the the intersection was, so the clock tower was right in the middle. We got up to mischief one night and went down and changed all the clock faces. There were four faces and we changed all the times. And I don't think anyone ever knew who it was, but now they do. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Mudgee was a great learning curve for me because we had to do everything ourselves. We were selling advertising, writing copy, producing the commercials. We were doing everything. Sweeping the floor, even mowing the lawns at the front of the radio station and pulling an airship. I went straight into breakfast. Uh, that meant getting up at uh, four o'clock, quarter past four in the morning to be on the air. Actually, I think we started on the air in those days about half past five. So maybe I was up about half past four. Uh, a short drive from where I was living in Mudgee to this paddock, which backed onto a huge um, uh, corn cob field, <laughs> which was probably full of snakes. Uh, and I think it was. And uh, it was there that I was able to put my hands on all the levers and make things, you know, for the radio station. So we had a lot of fun in Mudgee. I, that was probably the pinnacle of, 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 of uh, my early days. Um, but then, you know, it was time to move on. Uh, and then Bathurst offered me a job. And then I stayed in Bathurst for three years. Uh, I... I started doing drive, uh, four till three till six, four till seven, something like that. And, uh, and, and that gave me the opportunity of being involved with format radio because Bathurst was uh, a larger regional radio station than Mudgee. Um, it also held a, a, a lot of historical value being the oldest inland city in Australia. Um, uh, all those sorts of things. And it was uh, then a little later down the track, coming towards the end of my three year stay in Bathurst. And I was doing breakfast and uh, having a lot of fun doing the breakfast session because you work like a one arm paper hanger. And back in those days, we played, we played records, uh, LPs, 45s, and you'd have to whack it on the turntable and cue it up. And then you had a whole big pile of cartridges, which had all the commercials and the promos and the jingles and the other stuff on it. And you had to orchestrate all of this yourself with uh, maybe four cart machines, two turntables or maybe three turntables and just you in the studio on your own. And also having to turn the radio station on down at the, uh, in the control room area uh, by turning this switch on and then pressing that button and then turning another switch on and waiting for the red light to turn on. And then you hit another switch and that meant that the, that the transmitter lit up. So how did that big break come to get you into the Metro market? So I was doing the breakfast session in Bathurst and the phone rang prior to me starting my breakfast program at 5.30 in the morning, it would have been about quarter past five. And this voice said, uh, G'day son, uh, my name is Day. Uh, Gary Day in Melbourne at uh, 3AK here in Melbourne. Uh, I see that they've offered you a job at two, uh, 2HD in uh, Newcastle. And I said, yeah. I said, they, they did offer me a job and I've accepted it. Uh, no, you haven't, son. Uh, I've uh, heard the word. Uh, you're not going to bloody Newcastle, son. You're coming to bloody Melbourne. And that was the conversation. I can still hear it today. <laughs> so uh, he sent me a letter saying that uh, you won't be working in Newcastle. We've taken care of that. We'd like you to come to Melbourne. So that's how that happened. Now, 3AK at the time were breaking new ground, moving into 24-hour broadcasting, which meant that you had to basically entice a whole new audience across. Any rhyme or reason as to how you went about that? There, there was a, a big learning curve of working in a city uh, with competition. Um, 3UZ, 3XY, 3KZ, 3DB. Um, and this is prior to FM, of course, but there was still competition there in a big way. And everyone, we were all rivals with each other. And so therefore it was more business than pleasure. Well, that's not really the right way of putting it, but it was more business-like. Uh, and you were judged on what you did uh, on a handful of figures in a ratings book. 3AK at the time was, of course, part of Television City, the Channel 9 Melbourne Empire out of Bendigo Street. It must have been a very exciting time, rubbing shoulders with the likes of Graham Kennedy, Bert Newton, Brian Naylor, etc., when walking through the corridors. 
there is no doubt that Channel 9 was, um, it was uh, probably uh, considered uh, at that time the greatest television station in the country. And it had all the stars. Um, Graham Kennedy was there. IMT, Bert Newton was wandering around, Ugly Dave Gray, Jimmy Hannon had a television program. So it was a busy place. When I arrived at Channel 9, there were, I think, about 830 people working in the building. Not all at once, but over a period of a week, that's how many people came and went. Um, and it was exciting. It was electric. You could feel the electricity coming off the walls of the place. And there were also opportunities to be involved in other areas of what Channel 9 was doing. Channel 9 owned the radio station. It was originally in a caravan by a swimming pool in the middle of this old piano factory that Channel 9 had uh, called home. And uh, they then created new studios inside the building, beautiful state-of-the-art radio studios for the day, for at that time. 3AK was going through a metamorphosis, a change in, in, uh, in, its, uh, in its direction and, 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 uh, and its being as a, a viable radio station in a Melbourne or in a, in a city market like Melbourne. Bobby Goldsborough, top of the dial. His very pretty song of the moment. It's going so well, it's ever so popular too. The song that's called The Straight Life. Who's here till 10? Gary Mack! Darling, may I have the next dream with you? new release that's down for Malcolm Roberts, top of the dial. Our special guest today is Gary Mack. And Gary, you entered 3AK as a good guy and wound up as a No Wrinkly's Crusader. How did that transition come about? And was the Wrinkly campaign a direct shot fired at 3XY? Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's interesting that you ask that question. It was originally knocked back by 3XY because it was created for 3XY. Um... The good guy era uh, was virtually coming to an end in 1968 when I joined the radio station. Um, it had run its race, I suppose. It was a, um, what do you call it? I guess a, a franchise name around the world. There were uh, good guys in good guy radio stations all over the world. And it started out in New York, actually. Um, I've still got a, a good guy sweatshirt hanging around here somewhere. Uh, so therefore the, the, the ratings, the ratings needed, uh, a little more than a good guy image to get into this, um, uh, dominant market in Melbourne dominated by, um, three XY, three DB, three UZ, and to a certain extent, three KZ. So we were sort of like the new kid on the block that was suddenly sniffing around and biting at the heels of these big boys. So they needed another format and they went with a thing called friendly three AK, uh, which, you know, is a bit insipid now, I suppose. Uh, and that kind of, it, it made a small impact and, uh, time went by. It was all good fun, but time went by. And uh, a, a guy turned up at 3AK by the name of Rhett Walker. And uh, he said uh, to the powers that be and Channel 9, of both 3AK and Channel 9, I have a format that you need to take. And they said, yeah, what is it? 3AK, where no wrinklies fly. Oh, yeah, doesn't sound much. <laughs> But let me rewind because he'd already taken it to 3DB, uh, sorry, already taken it to 3XY and said, I've got a plan here for you. 3XY, where no wrinklies fly. Hey, it rhymes. There it is. And uh, the people who were running 3XY at the time, as much as it was a rock radio station, they said, that'll never work. Piss off. <laughs> so he then took it to 3DB. They threw him out because they were all a bit stodgy over there at the Herald and Weekly Times. And he then brought it to 3AK. Well, they grabbed it with both hands. They did. They grabbed it with both hands. And I'm so glad they did, because Rhett Walker taught me everything that I now know about the radio industry. He was, a, he was the human dynamo 
and uh, I, I, I enjoyed his company. I didn't ever really get to know him all that well as a personal friend, but we were friends. Um, he, uh, he kept his distance with people that, he, that were under his employ, if you like. But the, he knew how to treat people. He had extraordinary people skills. He was just amazing. He created a format uh, that some were, would question, but it was a format that he knew would work. And he said, I will guarantee that by the end of survey two with this format, we will be number one in Melbourne. And it happened. It was the most outrageous promotion, marketing, radio format that's ever been seen in this country. Uh, we stuck it up, everybody. Um, if you uh, turned your nose up at that, you were a wrinkly. So the target was very much at the, at, at the um, 18s to 24s and the 25s to 39 market. Whereas the other radio stations were trying to grab everybody. But he targeted towards that demographic and it worked. And we suddenly became the number one rated radio station in, in the entire country. And we're all walking around with large heads and huge egos. It was amazing. Now, just rewinding slightly, Gary, back in those late 60s, one of the features of 3AK were their fabulous beach broadcasts. Any recollections, tall tales and true from those OBs you'd like to share with us? Well, what they did was they, they, uh, they, they didn't broadcast, well, they broadcast from the beach with just a microphone and a set of headphones. So everything that went to air was back at the studio in Melbourne. And we had a, a, a little studio per se. It was like a little tent fly thing that was set up. Uh, and we had the playlist and we had the commercial logs. It was like doing your radio program, but not having to push any buttons or reach for the cartridge or put the music on the turntable. Uh, every, all that was done back at the uh, studio base in, uh, in Richmond. So it gave us the opportunity of, of uh, goofing off while the music played. And then there'd be a little light that would go off to see the music's coming to an end. And we have to put the headphones on. Away we go. And we do the back announce. And we literally broadcast from the beach. Uh, that was all the, the voiceover announcer stuff was all done from the beach. But the rest of it was done back in town. Um, and that's why it works so seamlessly, I think. Uh, we didn't have to worry about setting up studios and plugging into power poles and lines and, and all of that sort of stuff. All we needed was um, uh, a line to the nearest power pole for the microphone feed. These days it can be done, you know, on your old mobile phone. Uh, and it was organized to within an inch of every hour. Every second of the day was formatted and, and it ran like clockwork. Uh, Brendan Sheedy was um, largely responsible for the success of the 3AK beach broadcasts and they were, they became world famous. Uh, I remember there was a, um, a contingent of American radio station executives uh, who followed us around for about a week uh, just to see how he sort of did this grand plan on the beaches of Melbourne. And they were totally gobsmacked that we had all these people working for us. It was a radio station that kind of took over the beach. And we'd have Bounce Ball with Brendan Edwards, who was a fitness uh, guy and had a gymnasium here in Melbourne. Uh, we'd have um, the Miss Victorian Beach Girl Quest. And we'd go around and talk to these lovely ladies who were just sunbaking by the, the bay. And there were girls who were... Uh, 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 employed to go around and, and ask them if they'd like to be part of the beach girl quest. Uh, and then that became a television show. So it kept growing every year. It got bigger and bigger. And the planning that went into it was, uh, was it was a 12 month exercise just to get the thing, the logistics, right. Uh, we used to fight the sponsors off. People just simply wanted to be advertising with us on that, on that beach uh, broadcast thing. And it's interesting, I was only talking to Lionel York just recently. Lionel and I stay in touch uh, and talk quite often. Uh, Lionel's over in Perth uh, these days. And um, 
we were talking about how the fun that we had on those beach broadcasts, um, uh, Yorkie and I were chosen as kind of the, the linchpins of making the whole beach broadcasts work. And then we'd have the guests of the other announcers who'd come down on a daily basis. Now, they'd either drive down to wherever we were in Rosebud or Sorrento, Blairgowrie, uh, Mornington, um, uh, Mount Eliza, Mount Martha, wherever it happened to be. Um, and Or they'd come down in a launch um, from the St Kilda Marina. Uh, and people like Rosemary Margan would come down. She was doing the weather in those days on Channel 9, and she was also working with Graham Kennedy. Uh, and she'd come down and um, she'd be one of the judges for the Miss Victorian Beach Girl Quest. So there's another profile, promotional, cross-promotional uh, activity. They were always thinking of ways and means of promoting the radio station. And it worked just like clockwork. It was wonderful. Um, uh, Grantley D was, uh, was down on the beach in those days. He'd come down in the launch and we'd go down and pick him up and put him in front of the microphone and away he'd go. Plus, we also had the great band at that time that was the on-beach band that played every day, and that was the band Zoot with Daryl Cotton, um, B. Bertels. Uh, all of that was just wonderful times. Um, uh, and we'd, we'd have a sand modelling competition for the kids. Um, it was wonderful. Now, you'd never got into any trouble down there, but uh, was there any of a time when you and Grantley D and a couple of others sort of got into a bit of mischief? Yeah, we did. <laughs> There's another mischief story. Well, it's not so much mischief, but I think it comes up. I'll, I'll leave that till later, that part of the story. Um, yeah, on the Beach Broadcast one, one, uh, one night, you see, we were on the air with the Beach Broadcast from midday until 6pm. So we had six hours on the beach. It was fun. And... Uh, Invariably, uh, the guest would not drive back that day. Uh, they'd stay overnight at one of the hotels. And so, therefore, all that was all pre-booked and everything. And I think it was at the um, Rosebud Hotel, something like that anyway. Uh, we were sitting around after dinner in the lounge room, having a few drinks. Then, of course, the pub would close uh, eventually. And then we'd go up to one of the guy's rooms, you know, uh, and we'd take the booze up there with us. I remember that uh, Swift and Moore, uh, the uh, liquor merchants in Melbourne, were one of the sponsors of uh, the beach broadcasts. And uh, we were heavily promoting Bacardi rum. So we had lashings of Bacardi rum, you know, laid on. <laughs> And uh, Coca-Cola was, well, now I've got to think about this. It was either Pepsi or Coke were also a major sponsor. So the idea was you'd have your Bacardi with Pepsi. That's how it worked. But we didn't have any Pepsi. We didn't have any mixer to put in it. And uh, there was a, a program on Channel 9 at that time called Daktari. It was an old television program set in Africa and they had this sort of big, um, like a big ute and it was painted in the colours of a zebra. And it stood out so much that you could actually see it from the moon. And they had one of these Daktari trucks as part of the promotional activity down on the beach. And it was also used as a way of transport backwards and forwards to here and there to go and pick up some Kentucky Fried Chicken or some drinks or whatever you wanted. So we all had the keys to the Daktari wagon. And uh, it's about two o'clock in the morning. The pub has, has of course closed and we've run out of mix for the Bacardi. So one person said, we should slip down to the servo. It's about a mile down the road. You sure it's open? Yes, open. Yeah, no worries. So myself, Alan Aitken, and then Grantley said, I'll come with you. And we've walked downstairs. We've gone around to the car park, opened up the Daktari wagon. I've jumped in behind the wheel to drive down. Uh, and Grantley said, no, let me drive. Now, for those who are not aware of Grant Grantley's 
uh, at that time his 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 disability, although he never found it to be a disability at all, Grantley was blind. And uh, he said, let me drive. And we said, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm sitting in the middle, Grantley's sitting in the driver's seat, and Alan Aiken is on my left, three of us across the front seat, big enough to sit six people, I suppose. And off we went, and I'm telling Grantley to slowly drive. He could drive. He knew how to move the gears and where the clutch, and it was a clutch-driven car. It was uh, not a, 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 an automatic. And we backed in and out and backwards and forwards and finally got out of the car park and onto Nepean Highway and headed a mile down the road to the servo with Grantley driving. And we're thinking, this is hilarious. <laughs> when in actual fact, we could have all been arrested and thrown in jail. Uh, we get to the servo and we, we're telling him, just turn right here, Grantley, a little bit more to the right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, slow down, slow down. Now, just a bit more to the right. Now, come over here, a bit to the left now. Now you can stop. Okay. So uh, Alan Aitken, I think, got out of the car. Well, he did and uh, rushed in and bought a slab of Coca-Cola, uh, threw it in the back of the truck. And I talked Grantley out of driving back. I said, listen, this is, you know, I, I don't want to go and have a repeat performance of this. Uh, so we put him in the middle and I drove back, but that was, um, something that I'll never forget. And, uh, if there's any policeman listening to this at the moment, I think we've gone past the statute of limitations. Now, Gary, you don't seem like a combative person at all, but, uh, you don't seem to mind a good radio war. You were part of DB music when again, that campaign also seemed to be aimed at 3XY. Yeah, I think it was, uh, yeah, I mean, 3XY has been a, 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 um, a leader of, of um, uh, popular music through that era. Uh, they were on top of their game the whole way. Um, if I may, just going back to the 3AK where no wrinklies fly radio format, that was really designed to pull listeners in and then maybe smooth that format out. That didn't happen, and that's when they then looked at a format that would uh, completely that, that would be a complete reversal of what they were doing, and that's when Three AK chose to go into beautiful music, and that was that at that time that Three XY took off and became the num the number one uh, radio station for that lucrative younger market of eighteen to thirty nine. Uh, so when Three DB uh, came along changed the call sign from 3DB to DB Music. And they did make an impact. Uh, it, was, it was probably to say, we're here to take some of 3XY's or, uh, audience. Um, I mean, let's put it out there. That's, that's how it works. And um, uh, to, a, to a, a large extent, that worked. That worked. Um, yeah, DB Music was an interesting, uh, another interesting format. Um, it kind of cut against the grain of the older style of 3DB. Uh, 3DB had been a, um, an old friend for a lot of people for a long time. Uh, and when it suddenly, well, when it changed, and it changed quite dramatically, there was a rather huge backlash, particularly from the older uh, members of the community, uh, particularly, you know, the 65 plus audience that they had, which was enormous. And suddenly we scared them all away. <laughs> yeah, maybe the culture shock from John Eden to Rick Melbourne might have had something to do with that, Gary. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's an interesting story. Rick Melbourne was doing breakfast and it, uh, it was largely um, at that radio station that Rick um, created his catch cry of wake up. And uh, I mean, th that was something that just happened out of the blue. He, um, he created this madness, but then Rick's on air style has always been edgy uh, and to be admired too. I think he, um, he, he, uh, he certainly uh, was different. Um, and, and that caught the attention of a lot of listeners. 
So Gary, how difficult was it running a DB music format at seven o'clock at night, then all of a sudden having to pause because the seventh at Warwick Nabeel was about to start and uh, we're crossing there now? Yeah, that used to get up all the announcers' noses a little bit. But then, of course, they had this contract with um, the racing fraternity, uh, which could not be um, screwed up and thrown in the bin, as we would have all liked to have seen it, us working on the air, because that's where the radio station made uh, uh, a sizable chunk of its income. But, you know, we thought, no, we don't need that. Uh, But, of course, we had to. Uh, We had to toe the line. So uh, we, 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 we came to a compromise where we were playing the music and we, we, we did manage to hone or trim down the amount of chit-chat that would come prior to a race and uh, the blurb that might come after the event, uh, cut that down so that we would then give uh, the, the, uh, the figures that the public wanted. Um, and, and, and that's kind of how it worked. Uh, and, and it worked very well. Just digressing from the radio studio, of course, the mid to late 70s was dominated in Melbourne by venues such as The Underground, Inflation, Silvers and The Love Machine. Obviously a chance for jocks to uh, earn a little bit of extra pocket money. I get a phone call from Greg Evans. And Greg, he said, uh, you're no longer working in radio, mate, but you sort of want a job that kind of needs somebody in radio to make it work. And I said, what's that? He said, I've been doing a night or two at Silver's Disco. And I'd heard of Silver's. In fact, I'd received an invitation to the opening of Silver's on Turak Road, uh, the opening night, which I couldn't attend. Something else had come up. So I was aware of it, but I'd never been there. And he said, you've got to get on this lurk, mate. He said, they pay you, they pay you money. And uh, they put it in your hand at the end of the night. <laughs> I said, I'm up for that. Uh, again, we're past the limit of stat- uh, the statute of limitations here. Now, given your apprenticeship, if you like, in Newcastle, Mudgee and Bathurst, how much more difficult is it for aspiring announcers to get that type of training these days with far fewer shifts offered in those regional areas? The radio industry has changed quite considerably. And, you know, the, the, the chances now, sure, the, people still get jobs in the bush. Uh, there's no two ways about that, but there's not as many. And the opportunities are fewer now than what they were. There was a period of time where the opportunities were fantastic, you know, greater than at the time that I got into it. But it's, it's changed now. Everything's done through a hub and they're in networks and all of that sort of stuff. Now, Gary, speaking of opportunities for young announcers, how did your Melbourne radio school come about? Uh, in 1984, uh, my wife, Joni, and I were sitting down thinking, well, uh, I'd always had a hankering and she knew this uh, a hankering to be involved with a radio school or maybe even create one uh and i had very certain and and very uh, determined ideas to do it a certain way uh i discovered that after i'd created the syllabus i thought well i need to tell or inform the radio industry as to what I'm doing, as to what I've created and what I'd like to do in the way of training people for radio. So I called uh, probably 25 radio station managers at regional level around the country and told them what I was up to and then discovered that what I'd created was really not what they were looking for. And I, because I wanted to do it my way but there is a way that you've got to do it that's going to fit with regional radio because mostly that's where people make their start in this industry. And, and uh, there is a way of doing it, to, which was a little different to the way that I'd originally created. So I took their lead and I gave them what they wanted. And I'm glad I did because we were pretty successful at what we did. Uh, I have a list of names here of people who have been through the portals of the Melbourne Radio School who are working in various jobs all over the country in city radio, uh, radio news. Um, They're they're even administering radio uh, radio stations. One guy came in from Adelaide to do the radio course and he owns two radio stations now. So we kind of kicked a goal and we did that for 20 years. And then there came a time where we thought, okay, it's time to move on, maybe even to downsize where we live and so on. And we put the radio school on the market and it was picked up by the ACE Radio Network. 
Okay, Gary, now time for a dozen or so of our stock standard probing jock questions. First one, where were you when John Lennon died? I was doing voiceovers in the voiceover booth at Fox FM when they were in the Channel 10 building in Noah Wadding. And I was voicing a commercial when Rhett Walker, who, was, who had been put in as manager of the radio station, he rushed into the studio and he said, John Lennon has just been shot. And I said, Jesus Christ. He said, no, John Lennon. Now, I know I've made light of all of that, but that was Rhett. <laughs> so I was at Fox FM when that happened. No doubt you've had a few freebies over the years. What was the last concert that you actually paid for? Well, the last concert I actually paid for was to go and see Andre Rieu. And the big, uh, uh, on, uh, the big um, uh, Strauss Orchestra. And boy, what a show that was. And he's terrific. And he engages with the audience. And I just wanted to go and see what this was all about. That was terrific. So I paid for that one. Gary, the one concert you regret never seeing. I would have loved to have gone to Woodstock in New York, the first one, 1969. Uh, there was talk, actually, at Channel 9 that Alan Aiken and I would fly to uh, New York and we'd be there for Woodstock. Uh, but that fell in a heap. Uh, but there was a bit of talk at that time. I got pretty excited about all of that. <laughs> that would have been magic. But no, I didn't get a chance for Woodstock. Over the journey, any particular song that you never got tired of playing? Oh, yeah, this one, uh, The Hollies, The Air That I Breathe. I reckon that if they were to re-release that again, although I'm probably talking at the side of my neck here, uh, that could be a, another hit song again. It's just so beautifully done. We know you're such an eloquent man, Gary. Is there any one word that really troubled you on air? Musician. Put it in a sentence and I'm all right. Sorry, if it's in a sentence, I fall over, you know. Fred Nurk and Joe Bloggs are musicians. Sounds like I've had one too many reds. One we always love to ask, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking that you might get those don't come Monday orders? Yes. Uh, it was at 3AK and it was very early in my uh, tenure at 3AK. It would have been late 60s or early 1969. Uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, now called KFC, is a franchise group uh, and they made an inroad into Melbourne and their first store that they set up in Victoria, in Australia, I think, uh, was on the Pian Highway in Mentone with the little square hut and the typical Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, signage and all of that. And there was a 25-second pre-recorded produced commercial that we would play on the radio. They were booking time, as they did with all radio stations. And there was a five-second tag at the end of the commercial that the announcer on air, i.e. me, would have to read when the commercial, the pre-recorded commercial finished. So the commercial would finish and... Um, the, the thing would say, um, and don't forget, the first Kentucky Fried Chicken store is now open, Nepean Highway, Mentone. It's finger-licking good. That's all we had to say. Yeah. So it would have been maybe about nine o'clock, maybe quarter past nine. And uh, <laughs> this ad comes up, and I said, don't forget, Kentucky Fried Chicken is open on Nepean Highway, Mentone. Go there now. It's finger fucking good. And I went straight into another commercial. And I thought, holy moly, that's the end of everything. The first person to walk into the studio, because we're all in the same building together, was Graham Kennedy. And he said, do you, because he had just driven back from the pub down the road. They used to go down and have a, a sherbet before they did the show, IMT. And uh, he was driving back into Channel 9 with his radio going, listening to me. And he rushed into my studio and he said, do you know what you just said? And we all know why Graham got tipped off the air some years later. Uh, and I said, yeah. And he said, that's amazing. He said, has anyone rung you? And I said, no. And I'm waiting for the phone to ring. And we had a hotline phone, which came in from the program director and other executives who wanted to maybe say something to us. And they, it was a separate line that was into the studio. And we had another line that another phone that had nine lines on it. Not one of them lit up. The next morning, uh, I get a phone call from uh, management requesting my uh, presence at the radio station by 11 o'clock this morning.
because I was doing nights then, you see. Of course, the word had spread around within the ranks of Channel 9 that this had happened. Mac had used a, a profound piece of language on the wireless. <laughs> so, yes, I was carpeted and I was told that uh, if it was to happen again, uh, I'd be uh, well and truly given the marching orders. So that gave me a big fright at that time. A couple of quickies, Skyhooks or Sherbet? Both. <laughs> Uh, I have friends in both bands, so I have to be—I have to have show my allegiance. You see, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys or Sgt. Pepper's by the Beatles. Yeah, Beatles. Beatles. Pet Sounds was a great album too. You can throw the Rolling Stones in there too if you want. What is your most treasured piece of memorabilia from those three AK days? Well, I mentioned it uh, in passing briefly uh, in in the in in the earlier part of our chat. And that's a, a 3AK good guy wind cheater, an original, never been worn, and it's still in the original plastic bag. Does it still fit you, Gary? It certainly doesn't. <laughs> For all those interviews you've done over the years, have you ever been starstruck by any one of them? No, uh, I've been... Um, Maybe a bit nervous at first because, you know, these are people that you admire and you've played a lot of their music and uh, or you've seen them on the big screen or whatever. Uh, and, you know, it's sometimes that's what they do. And here I am sort of trying to find out things about them and so on. Um, but I had the tables turned on an interview um, uh, that I did. I was not starstruck, but I... I found it quite surreal to be talking to Paul and Linda McCartney. And it was uh, just before my wife, Joni, and I were to be married. I think we were getting married about three weeks after I did this interview. I was working at DB Music and the station had um, uh, the promotional contract to promote uh, Wings Across Australia. So it was Paul McCartney and Wings. And if you recall, his uh, wife, Linda, uh, was sort of the token uh, wife who was sort of part of the band and would play a few keyboards. Uh, and they brought the entire entourage of family, friends and neighbours with them. <laughs> and this was uh, the final concert for um, uh, Paul McCartney and Wings Across Australia was held at the Meyer Music Bowl. And it was a total sellout. There were more people there than I've ever seen in my life before. And they sent me along with an Agra tape recorder to get a, a few words from Paul as to uh, the success of, of this great tour. And so we all had backstage passes. Joni was with me. Uh, the show finished and we were shown into the downstairs underneath the Bayer uh, Music Bowl dressing rooms and all of that. And we've walked into this big room and everyone's packing up and they all kind of disappeared. And that's when Linda came up and she said, oh, she said, you're here to talk to Paul. I said, yes. And we shook hands with Linda and she said, he's in the shower. Oh, okay. And I could see him in the shower. There he was. And so we waited around. I said, oh, I can set this up. And she said, do you want a drink? And they, were, had, they had uh, some booze there. So we had a glass of wine with her. Paul came out with the towel wrapped around him. He said, it won't be long. I'll be there in a minute. Okay. So by this time, everyone else had gone and it's just Joni and me and Paul and Linda. And we're sitting on the floor of the dressing room drinking wine and we're just chatting. And it was like I'd known them forever. And uh, Paul said, uh, what about you two? You know, uh, what's happening with you two? And we said, well, we're getting married in three weeks. Getting married. Well, Linda said, what sort of dress will you be wearing, Tony? <laughs> and it was like sitting down with old family. It was really quite, I mean, it was surreal. Mm. I mean, here I am with this guy with the long, it was probably the most successful tour. They did a world tour with taking wings around the world. Uh, and I have a copy of that as well. It's sensational. And on DVD, I play that often. And uh, here we were, just the four of us, sitting on the floor, drinking wine and recording this lovely interview, uh, most of which we couldn't put to air. Uh, and I then rushed back to 3DB or DB Music, as it was known in those days, and cut it up and put it to air with this final interview with Paul McCartney. Um, so that was, that was special. 
I think any of us would take that as a highlight any day of the week, Gary. Listen, three albums that were the soundtrack of your teenage years. Oh, now I'm going to show my age. Uh, I was uh, quite taken with Bill Haley and the Comets. Uh, they did a, two or three albums, plus they also appeared in a couple of movies where they played as sort of the token band. Um, Bill Haley and the Comets. Bob Dylan is a standout. I mean, Bob has been around, it seems, forever. Uh, he started back in the late 50s uh, with, with his songs. And I suppose my favourite female singer of all time has to be Ella Fitzgerald, followed very closely by Doris Day, who I would have loved to have interviewed. And finally, Gary, if radio hadn't been the career, what do you think you might have done? Probably a shutterbug. I, 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 I've always had a hankering for photography. Um, there was a moment in time when we built a house at Glen Waverley that I set up a, um, it was sort of like a, what do you call it? It's not a den. It's called the, um, it's like a little home office thing, I suppose. And I put a little dark room in there. So I used to do a lot of black and white photography, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I've sort of moved on to video and, and I sort of tinker around with video production and that sort of stuff now. So I enjoy that side of it. And I, I think if I had a chance of doing all of this again, I might have gone that way, I think. I'm not sure. Well, obviously, Gary, it goes without saying that we're glad that you extended that six-week stay because you've been a giant of the radio industry in this town on a number of different levels. And listen, we're delighted that you could take the time to join us on Pilots today. It's been a pleasure, Paul, and uh, I just hope I didn't turn your ear too far. Uh, as I said to you, I think, prior to us doing this interview, I have uh, the ability of being able to talk underwater with a, ma- with a mouthful of marbles. Somebody once said to me, if you ask Gary Mack the time, he'll tell you how to build a bloody clock. Well, speaking of clocks and time... Our time is up. You've been listening to Gary Mack on Pilots of the Airwaves.